Well, good morning, and uh, good to see you again. I had a few people before the service saying, where have you been? And uh, in a kind, loving, Christian way, I'm sure. And my answer is that I've been uh, preaching at our campuses in January for Family Month, and uh, so what a delight to see how God's working in uh, the, the various venues and gatherings of our church, and uh, uh, some of whom are joining uh, Uh, by stream here today, so good morning to all of you, but uh, great to be uh, back here in Crown Point, and one of the observations, even as I've been around, and and many of you know, is that, you know, I've lived here for 20 plus years. The last three to five years, we've had something different going on here in Northwest Indiana, and that is we have this huge influx of Illinois people who are who are moving here, and I regularly meet people that are visiting and they're trying to establish a new life here, and you know, a, a dentist, a doctor, a church, etc. And uh, it's been it's been a uh, I think it's been a, a kind of an altering factor here for our church and maybe for the community. So I want to talk to you if you're new to Northwest Indiana, and that could be for any number of reasons that you've moved here. One of the things that you perhaps did not realize in moving here is that uh, you are now living in one of the most diverse communities in the entire country. Uh, And to give you an idea of this, just Lake County, okay, I'm going to just give you some Lake County uh, demographics. Here in Lake County, racially, the, uh, here's the mix, white, we've got 261,000, black African American, we've got 112,000. We've got almost 100,000 Latino, uh, Asian 6,000. Here's an interesting statistic. In Northwest Indiana, over 70,000 people return home and speak a language other than English. So for a church to be a gospel-preaching, gospel-thriving church in a community with the kind of racial and and, uh, lingual diversity that we have here in Northwest Indiana, guess what we have to be really, really strong on? So for example, let's say that uh, we were a, a church uh, in, in Wyoming or Idaho. We'd have to be really, really good at, at, at ministering to farmers, don't you think? Like that, of all the things you got to be good at, you better be good at, at, at farming ministry. And if, you, uh, if we were a church in uh, Utah, we would have to be really, really good at meeting people either in or coming out of the Mormon faith there in, in Utah. But here we are in Northwest Indiana. What's our thing that we need to be really, really good at, clear at, strong at, our hearts united in? What it means that every human being is made in the image of God. And what it means for us to love and to minister to people from a variety of very diverse ethnic, racial, cultural backgrounds, assumptions, beliefs. This includes, by the way, ministering to and standing for the rights of the unborn. And you say, why are we talking about this today? Here's why. Because last Sunday is known as Right to Life Sunday, okay? Uh, The month of February is Black History Month. And we just see this kind of as a a bridging Sunday 
uh, on a subject that has very similar theological undergirdings, both in terms of why we believe the unborn should be extended the, the, the rights of being human beings and the preservation of their life, as well as issues like racism, sexism, Me Too movement, etc. Why, why should we see each other with an inherent dignity and worth and treat each other accordingly? It's the same biblical truth. It applies both ways. And so, to that end, we're going to make sure that we are good at this, because this is the Jerusalem that we live in. This is, this is, our, this is our community. MLK said this, injustice anywhere is a great threat to justice everywhere. Just, injustice anywhere is a great threat to justice everywhere. And that injustice includes no matter where it's found, no matter what community it's found in, even the womb of a mother, it applies. So, to the goal of being a rock-solid Northwest Indiana, gospel-preaching, multiracial, multi-ethnic church, we're addressing this today. I will tell you, next Sunday is back in Romans, and we're going to be in Romans 12, verse 1, therefore on the Brothers, on the basis of the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sites. It's going to be awesome, okay? So that's next Sunday. Just to be clear, we'll be back in that. But our text today is Jonah 4. Jonah chapter 4. I know that many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. It is a whale of a story. I actually put in my notes here to say sorry after saying that, so... I'm going to follow my notes on that. Sorry. But the story of Jonah, my daughters love the story of Jonah. When I put them down to bed and, they, they, and we do a, a bedtime story, you know, it's, it's oftentimes, it's either Daniel in the lion's den, uh, you know, Zacchaeus, or Jonah. These are the stories that they, that they want. And when I tell them the story at bedtime, I never tell them Jonah 4. I don't think I've one time told them Jonah 4. Uh, and part of that is because by the time you get to Jonah 4, I'm getting sleepy too uh, with them. <laughs> and probably because it might be a little terrifying to them. But just in case you're here and you don't know the story of Jonah, can I give you sort of the bedtime summary story of of Jonah. So there was this guy named Jonah, and uh, Jonah lived there in Israel. Well, the arch enemies of, of Israel, at, looming, and certainly after Jonah, were the Assyrians. And the leading city of the Assyrians was Nineveh. And one day, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to them that he is going to, if they don't repent, destroy the city. Well, Jonah didn't like that idea. And Jonah did the opposite of what God told them to do. Why? Because Jonah sensed in the message the possibility that God might not destroy them if they did repent. And so he decided to hightail it out of there. To give you an idea of how like, totally contrary to God's will he did, look at this picture to give you a sense of it, okay? So he's there in Joppa, he's, 
God says, go to Nineveh. What, is, what does Jonah say? I'm going to, he, he goes down and buys a ticket to, on a boat to Tarshish, which was like the edge of the known world at that time. Off he goes. He's going to run away from God. But we can't outrun God, can we? And God sends a terrible storm. And the ship that Jonah's in is about to be torn apart. And Jonah says, if you throw me overboard, the, the seas will calm. And the sailors finally decided to do that, and they threw him overboard. And there's Jonah descending in the water. Down, down, down he's going. And as he's going down, he repents of his disobedience to God. And God, in his mercy, sends a very large fish that swallows Jonah to preserve his life. Now, maybe you've had a a life-altering experience of some kind in your life. I'm going to suggest that three days in the gullet of a fish would be that probably for most of us, and indeed it was that for, for Jonah. And so the fish swims, and it vomits Jonah back up on shore, my daughter's favorite part in the whole story, <laughs> vomits him blah, back up on shore, that's what I do at the bedtime. He heads off to Nineveh. He preaches, as God told him, to the city of Nineveh, and a huge revival hits Nineveh. Everybody repents, dresses in sackcloth and ashes, even the king repents. And because they repent, God relents. And it's really one of the most successful preaching revival stories in history is what happened in Nineveh when Jonah went there and preached. And so you're in chapter three and you're like, wow, how awesome it would be to be Jonah. I mean, how thrilling to be a pastor and to speak a message and for everyone to just turn to God in mass. But oh no, Jonah is not happy, as you may know. We pick it up now, chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this, is is not this what I said? When I was in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? If I ever gave a message and all of you were dressed in sackcloth and ashes as you left here, I would think that was a good Sunday. (laughs) I would get in my car, I'd drive home thinking, praise God, right? Jonah, the exact opposite. In fact, Jonah is not only not happy about it, he is suicidal about it. He says, God, take my life. And what do we see behind this sorrow that he has? He tips his hand here in verse two, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, his theology made him do it. His theology made him do it. And can we note for a moment, his theology was really, really good. There is no problem in his assessment 
of the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God. He has it spot on. So what is the problem here? The problem is that Jonah doesn't want the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God extended to these Assyrians. No, the Assyrians, famous to this day for their brutality and what they, the atrocities that they would do when they would conquer a people, literally skinning people alive, piling up their bodies and other terrible things I won't even mention that they would do. They were feared. They were, they were hated, not just by the Jews, but by any you know, country around them. The Assyrians, they lived in terror of the Assyrians. And Jonah doesn't want this grace extended to people like that. And so God's response here to Jonah is to ask three questions we find in chapter four. Questions are powerful, right? I heard this recently. Questions prick the conscience. Accusations harden the heart. He doesn't come to Jonah. He certainly could have and said, you know, done with you, right? Or you're wrong. But no, he asks a question. Are you right? Are you, do you do well to be angry? Well, here now is the story. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become, what would become of the city. Now, imagine this. Here you have Jonah. He's in Nineveh. This would have been a very difficult walk for him. Okay? Why? Because now Jonah's like a celebrity in Nineveh. Right? He starts walking out and people are like, Jonah! Awesome message! Man, you changed my life! Thank you so much! He's like, oh yeah, fine, all right. He goes a little bit further. Here's somebody else going, it's Jonah! Hey, family, it's Jonah! We love, can we get our picture with you? We love you! Jonah! Goes a little bit further. Here comes maybe even the king. You have saved my people. You have saved my city. If it wasn't for you, we would all be destroyed. Jonah's like, great. He's not happy about this at all. Pastors, by the way, love to hear words of encouragement after sermons. Perhaps some of you should follow the lead of the Ninevites and try a new something else uh, with that. But. but it was pure torture for a guy who wanted the city to be destroyed. Now they love him. He hates them. He hates them. And so he goes east of the city to see what actually is going to happen. Presumably the 40 days had not passed yet. He thinks to himself, maybe God will hear my complaint and blow them away anyway. Verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon, up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. If you read through Jonah, God keeps sending things to Jonah. He sends him a message and a mission. He sends a storm. 
Uh, he sends a fish. Now he sends a plant, a kind of fast-growing leafy plant. We don't know for sure what it was, but it grows in Jack and the Beanstalk type speed, right over Jonah, right when he needs it, right there at his little hacienda. Now there's this little leafy plant. He's sitting in the shade. There's a cool breeze. He's east of the city. Now life is good, and the verse says that Jonah was exceedingly glad. Like, he is comfortable. He can now just sit here and wait to see if Nineveh gets destroyed. But then God sends a worm, a fish, a plant, and a worm. And this worm comes, eats the plant, and it very quickly dies. The sun rises. This is the desert, okay? This is kind of in the area, if uh, you remember from like the Iraq war, et cetera, they, you see the, the vision, it's kind of barren, dry, hot. They would interview soldiers and they would say, it's a furnace over here, right? It's so hot. That now is what Jonah is in. He is in the heat. Only now with no plant, no shade, he's faint. And for the second time he says, I want to die. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's a dangerous prayer to pray to God. We find here that Jonah, God's giving Jonah an object lesson. He has no idea that God is just sort of reeling him in here now because he loves the plant and hates its destruction. God loves people and hates their destruction. Jonah's thinking about plant, God's thinking about people. God is about people. Verse 10, and the Lord said, here now is the conclusion of the, of, the, of the book, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? and also much cattle. And that's the end. Sort of an awkward ending, isn't it? We don't know how Jonah responds to this. He might have said, you know what, God, you're exactly right. I'm going to live in Nineveh. I'm going to be the, the pope of, of Nineveh from now on. We don't know. He might have continued to be angry. We don't know. It ends with that question. But the point here is that the Lord, by showing the smallness of Jonah's heart and the pettiness of his concern about a plant in sharp contrast to the wideness of God's heart and God's mercy and his care and concern for people. And did you see the analogy? You're all concerned about a plant that, that's only been around for 24 hours. You didn't do a single thing to grow it. You didn't garden it. You didn't nurture it. And when it died, you're devastated and you want to die. How much more should I have a heart for a great city like Nineveh? 120,000 people, the text says, who don't know their right from their left, that's debated what it exactly means. I would take it to mean 120,000 people who are in spiritual darkness. They're, they're disoriented. They don't know which way to go. They need light. They need truth. So what God is doing here is he's turning Jonah's anger back on himself helping him to see how self-interested and self-concerned, how petty he is, and how great 
God is. Now, what about Nineveh? What about Nineveh? Can you hear God saying it this way? What about Nineveh? 120,000 people. And we need to realize that when God sees people, he sees individuals who he created to reflect his own glory, to reflect his own character, his own nature. That's why the Bible says that we are made in the image of God. And God says, I created every single Ninevite. I know them by name. I know every hair on their head. And I have tended in Nineveh for all these years. My heart longs for these people. They are worth far more than the plant. And again, that final question, it's a haunting question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Which is another way of saying, Jonah, shouldn't you be concerned about that great city? And again, that's it. That's how it ends. We don't know if he repents. We don't know if he responds, good or bad. We don't know anything. But the haunting conclusion is the question for us today. If I am so concerned for the lost Ninevites of the world, why aren't you? Bethel Church, why aren't you? Now, what does this have to do with abortion and racism and bigotry and sexism and Me Too movement and etc.? What about seeing our Nineveh through the eyes of God? You know, the world, these, these things I just mentioned, they're obviously sharply debated right now. They're hugely important in the, in the current political uh, arena. And so many things right now, it's, it's, a, it's a cauldron of, of argument and debate and indeed hate. And we can look at the way that the world tries to answer these questions of divisions amongst people and uh, evaluation based on skin color and the rights of the unborn, all of these things. Uh, but Christianity offers a solution. The, the world says, they try to answer it, there is no God, that we are not image bearers, there, there's no inherent dignity and worth for human beings based upon a divine creator. And now we're going to try to solve these problems. I will leave it to you to judge how well they're doing. Christianity comes along with a much different, and I would say, much more satisfying answer. What is the answer that Christianity has? Well, it grounds the moral value of human beings in the foundational worth of God himself. Because we are therefore made in the image of God, we have a creator, we have inherent dignity, we have inherent worth, and that is true no matter where God's image is found. That is true in the hospice unit. It's true in the nursing home. It's true in the schools. It's true for the fetus in the womb of the mother. That is also an image bearer. Why do we care about that? Because we care about God. Because God is so great, so, you know, you are worthy of your name, as we were saying here today. Because of that truth, Every reflection of that ultimate infinite worth is to be valued and is to be treasured and is to be preserved. Therefore, murder is wrong because it ends the life of an image bearer. Violence is wrong because it does damage against an image bearer. And Christianity says that all human life, and brother or sister, that means yours as well is a derived worth from the worth 
of God himself. And that is why we as a church for many years, we have openly advocated for uh, the, the value of the life of the unborn. And we see abortion as morally wrong and would that our country would in, in, in law make that a reality. Would make that a reality. I'll try it again. Would make that a reality. Are you with me here today, okay? Because the danger here is that, you know, if, if you're like me, I basically grew up with abortion being the law of the land, the, the freedom to have that. And so it becomes sort of over time, like the frog in the kettle, normal and acceptable. And, 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 and young people probably, you know, in, in our church even, that this is just, it's always been this way. And the danger is, is that we grow accustomed to something that God hates. And with every bit of tenderness for the situations that women find themselves in, and the decisions that for many of them, it is a terrible, terrible decision, that the situation they're forced to make a decision. We must say that little baby is an image bearer. This is why we support local ministries like the Women's Center, which provides holistic care for the children and the mothers. Both are critical. This is why a few years ago we helped establish the first ever crisis pregnancy center in downtown Gary. Why is that a critical statement? Because it says that every unborn child, including the black ones and the brown ones, are made in the image of God and have inherent worth. This is why you're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks, I believe. We are starting a new initiative called Safe Families, helping children whose families are in dire situations for short-term care for these children. You'll hear more about that. But the story of Jonah undergirds this basic belief about the unborn and the value of, of human life and how God sees people, not plants. He sees people, and he cares very much about them. But if the story of Jonah has a, a more explicit truth, it is the racial issue, okay? The racial issue. Let me point out two difficult truths that we see here in the book of Jonah. Number one, that God often delights to save people with whom we disagree and dislike. You ever notice that? Apparently, Jonah was a pretty good theologian. Like, I, I see some training, some education. He probably went to the right schools. He, he, he had really good theology in one respect. What can we say about the Assyrians? Terrible theology, terrible morality. I mean, there, you couldn't have a more divergent worldview than from Jonah's than from, with the Assyrians. They were pagans. They, they practiced a pagan religion. And so if you were to say, okay, where in the world do we think that God is going to bring revival? 
in that day? Like, where would you guess? And we go, well, let's see, I think, I'd have to believe it would happen in Jerusalem. I mean, right there where the kids are all raised learning the Torah, and they read the Torah, and they got the temple, and they got the worship. I mean, God, God isn't, God's going to bring revival there in Jerusalem. And, and maybe not Jerusalem, maybe, maybe broadly Israel somewhere. Okay, we're okay with maybe, a, you know, we'll, we'll throw in there a, uh, another city, Bethel, just to pick one. Um, that was a city in that day. I don't know if you knew that. I won't go off on that tangent, but uh, God wouldn't bring revival in Nineveh, not amongst people like that. God wants to send people like that to hell. Like, they're not in the group. They're outside the group. Yet God delighted to bring revival to Nineveh. So let's just say today that you're a Republican. How would you feel if this summer word gets out that at the Democrat National Convention, there was a huge movement for the gospel and a huge revival that broke out at that gathering? Okay, that's what you say. But wouldn't you in your heart, some of you, if you're a Republican, say, wait a second, that can't happen there. That should happen at the Republican National Convention because God likes us more. (laughs) Or to be fair, can I just reverse that, lest somebody here get mad at me. If you're a Democrat here today and you hear that revival breaks out at the Republican, now how do you feel in your heart? Wait a second, God, God likes us. And so we fully expect, if there's a movement of God anywhere, it's going to be amongst our people. If you're a Bears fan, and let's say revival broke out, (laughs) I don't know, Lambeau, somewhere around there. No, Pastor, we draw the line there. That's just, we were with you until that point. But here's the truth. That God often delights to save people different than us. Different than us. And when that happens, do we resent it? Like quietly, I know publicly we'd all be like, oh, we're, we're so glad to hear that the, you know, denomination X is uh, God's working amongst those people. But do we suddenly in our heart go, wait a second, I thought we deserved that kind of work of God. Because We all know God likes us a little bit more than he likes them. Why isn't revival happening amongst us? Jonah didn't want God's grace to the Ninevites. Let's just call it for what it is. He was a spiritual racist. He was a spiritual racist. We don't want people like them getting God's grace. And so I'm going to run off to Tarshish to make sure that they do not hear the gospel. They don't respond. Why? Because they were racially different than the Jews, they were spiritually different than the Jews, they were culturally different than the Jews, not them, God, anybody but the Assyrians. And yet we see in the book of Jonah the wideness of the mercy of God. We see the wideness of the love of God. We see the the heart that God has for people, for image bearers across the spectrum. Notice that he, he, he gives how many people are there. He knows the number that are there. 
He knows their need. And he sent Jonah with a message that they needed. Now, let's bring this home. Here we are. We're a church in northwest Indiana. Again, if we were in some other context where everybody was X, Y, Z, we could talk about what does it mean to be a church that is effectively ministering in a context with X, Y, Z. But we're here in northwest Indiana, this incredibly diverse community, diversity ethnically, diversity linguistically, and a history of racial tensions and distrust. Jonah 4 directly challenges and asks this question, will we be a church and will we be individuals in the church who see the people around us like Jonah or like God? Like Jonah or like God? What would a Jonah lens look like? Let's just say that you're like intentionally, I'm going to put on the Jonah lens here. How would, how would a church act with a Jonah lens? Well, I would say that we would be a church pretty much unto ourselves, right? Us four, no more, close the door. Here we are. We're going to just sort of cloister in. We're going to hunker down. We're going to really focus on our children's ministry because we want our kids going to heaven. Amen. But we're just going to sort of make sure that our family, our little group, we are the ones, we know God likes us more than all those pagans out there, and we're just going to hunker down and make sure our church is saved and we're all growing in Jesus. Now, we wouldn't say it, but suddenly we would think, again, that we somehow uniquely deserve the favor of God. Our doctrine is better. Our preaching is better. Amen. (laughs) Our approach is better. We're better. We're better than them. We deserve the favor of God. With the Jonah lens, how does a South Lake County Christian feel when he or she hears that yet another black teen is gunned down in Gary? What's the thought process that goes in my mind? Oh, glad I'm not there. Glad it's not my teen. There. We're safe. Or how do we respond when we hear of yet another Lake County politician whose corruption negatively affects the quality of life in North Lake County? Or, 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 I could give you any number of examples. Here's one. How does a white evangelical Christian hear that Kanye West is now professing Jesus as his savior? What? A rapper? Married to a Kardashian? God doesn't like people like that. That's Jonah thinking. That's the Jonah lens. Last year, this same weekend, I gave a very similar message. And I used the term African-Americans. And the week after the message, I got a letter from somebody criticizing me for using the term African-Americans. Why would I do that? Here's why I do that. Because as I understand it, that is a preferred term. And so out of respect, I use it. Jonah, 
By the way, Jonah, can we agree that you should be glad the fish wasn't a racist? <laughs> Let me give you another story. There's a real excellent church down in Louisville, and their pastor told the story of what happened when an African-American family joined their church. This is back in the 1980s, and apparently shortly after the family joined, the wife began attending some of the women's events. And after one of the women's meetings, a member of the church innocently said to the wife of this, this uh, African-American family, Margaret, it's so good to have you. I don't want to say the wrong thing, so tell me, do you prefer to be called African-American, black, or Negro? Margaret looked at her and said, I think I'd just like to be called Margaret. People, not plants, not labels, not stereotypes, people. God loves people. And he loves the diversity of people. Whose idea was the diversity? God's. And there is a beauty in all of that. And that's where the lens that we have to wear. And I, I, you could preach this anywhere in the world. But in particular, a church located where we are located, a church with campuses across the county that we're talking about in, in, in Porter County, a church now that this year began a, a Chinese congregation speaking in Mandarin every Sunday, a church like ours had better stomp on the, the Jonah lens and solidly be wearing the God lens. And to note that as Jesus died for humanity and bore the cross of humanity, the, the, the sin of humanity and the cross, think of this. As he's there, he's bearing the guilt of our sins. And that guilt is across all ethnicities. It's white sin, it's black sin, it's Latino sin, it's Asian sin, it's Indian sin. Jesus was no racist with his atonement. He willingly bore the sin of every skin color of humanity. And that's how God sees it. And that's how we should see it. So what do we do? Number one is to repent. Repentance is not just a message needed in Nineveh. That's a message needed in our, in our hearts. To repent. If you've been raised to devalue someone because of skin color or ethnic difference, if that's just sort of in the DNA of your family, how about starting a new DNA in your family Amen. and repenting of that? Who cares what uncle so-and-so or cousin whatever says or thinks? For you, is it a Jonah lens or is it a God lens? How will you view people? Here's the wonderful truth. Is racism is a sin that can be forgiven as well. Confess it to God. Even a kind of, maybe a low level of racism, a, a, a subtle bigotry perhaps that you, if you were honest, see in your heart. Confess that as well. Ask God to help you see Ninevites as people worthy of divine love and ours as well. I don't know who said this quote, but it's good. I share it with you. Decide to love those whom God loves. 
But realize, as long as there is some self-righteousness clinging to your souls, we may be emboldened to think that God is too generous to those people we, for whatever prejudicial reason, have decided are more worthy of his wrath than we. Now, I would say to you that it is much easier to do this in a general sense or a theoretical sense than in a personal sense. Because it's one thing to say, yes, 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 I want to view, I want to see Ninevites the way that God sees Ninevites. But then when you have, you know, it's easier to love Nineveh than to love Ninevites. Because one is a general thing and one is a personal thing, an interpersonal thing. So do you have a Ninevite in your life? Somebody different than you in some very key category, apparently in your heart. This is maybe a neighbor or a coworker. They're, they're different. In fact, they're so different you would prefer them be fired or transferred. And perhaps you've had it, your little hacienda there at the office, you've been quietly, you know, there's, there's a leafy plant over you right now and you're sort of hoping for their destruction in some way. Maybe you've even thought this, God, take this Ninevite out of my life. Radical gospel question. How about loving the person different than you? This is Christian compassion and love. And, 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 and maybe the skin color, the language, the cultural difference is something that you have a hard time overcoming. How about viewing them as a human being with respect and dignity? Repent and renew love and compassion for every image bearer. And secondly, is that we as a church, corporately and individually, need to support the dignity of human life everywhere it's found. And I wonder if perhaps you've never realized the connection between abortion and racism. It's the same truth. And my observation in churches is that you have a lot of people who are appalled about abortion and that will say that maybe marched in Washington two weeks ago. Yes, we need to stand for the rights of the unborn. But then subtly practice a kind of quiet bigotry or racism. You know, in most churches you will never hear jokes about abortion. If somebody told a joke in, you know, in the hallway or in the golf course about abortion, we would, we would be, you can't joke about abortion. But you tell a racial joke. And quietly amongst friends, there's a little laughter and a kind of acceptance of that. Would that we would be a church that views joking about race like joking about abortion because both violate the same biblical principle. The two are very much tied together. One more quote. These two issues, abortion and racism, are about God and about the nature of man created in the image of God. What we believe about God and his majesty and what we believe about the meaning of being human in relation to God will make all the difference in the world how we think and act about abortion and racism if we really believe what we say we believe. Racism is a refusal to give honor to somebody different than me. 
But the gospel calls us out of our little petty perspectives into a kind of global heart, the heart of God, this massive cross-cultural, cross-ethnicity, cross-sin barrier that God overcomes and expresses his love through Christ in order to save people from every tribe, tongue, language, skin color, place on this earth. That's God's intended purpose. We were sent into the world to make disciples of all nations. There is no room for racism in the Great Commission. This is the purpose of why we are here. And so that's one reason I'm personally thrilled that we are a church that has reached into the African-American community with, uh, with our Gary campus and the City Life Center. That says something about what we actually believe. I'm personally thrilled that this year we began a cross-lingual ministry in the Chinese community, in the Asian-American community. I'm profoundly thankful for that. We're hopeful that maybe this year we could begin a Latino congregation ministering in Spanish as part of our more and better, and maybe that'll happen this year. Why are we doing that? I want everybody to get this. Why are we doing this? We are doing this for God. We are doing this for the gospel. We are doing this for the Great Commission. We are doing this because this is our Jerusalem. We are doing this because we know that God loves diversity and unity. That's what heaven's gonna be like, right? There we all are, the lamb at the center. There we all are. And you're gonna look around there and you are not going to see people that look exactly like you. Maybe a few, okay? Maybe a few. But it's gonna be just this, you know, it's gonna be a kind of rainbow there of all the colors and languages and people and I don't know how we all sing the same language. Maybe we don't. We'll find out someday. But there we are and we're all gathered, the diversity of humanity gathered around the lamb who died for the sins of the diversity of humanity. And we will sing praises to God and there's not gonna be any sense of like, hey, let's all get over here in our group, okay? No, there we all are and we don't care, we love it. And why do we love it? Because we know that God loves it. This was his will and purpose from the beginning. So Northwest Indiana, this is our Nineveh. I say we don't sit in the shade, cloister together, have a little plant, and wait for the city to go to hell. I say that we stand in the city and we declare a message of salvation and love and unity and diversity. And we continue to preach that until Jesus comes.